Hello, my name is Michael Albert. I'm the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. Before beginning, I just want to reiterate something that I've said before. Sorry about that. But I do need help. Uh, you could go to our Patreon site, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So it's www.patreon.com slash Z. From there, you can find out more about the podcast, and you can also, if you so choose, support us with a regular donation. And now episode 13. It's titled Reforms, Reformism, and Seeds of the Future. One of the abiding issues of political and social strategy is how to relate to reforms. To see if there are any near-universal insights on that matter that we can advocate, first we need to get clear about some definitions. A reform is a change in society that doesn't alter society's basic defining institutional relations. Winning higher wages is a reform. So is enacting affirmative action. So is ending a war, changing tax rates, and so on. Reformism, by contrast, is not a policy, but is instead an overall approach to social change. Reformism takes for granted that basic defining relations are not going to alter. It seeks to win reforms, maybe even lots of reforms, but reforms are the only aim of reformism. So what can we say that is virtually always true about reforms and reformism? First, to reject reforms for being insubstantial, incomplete, insufficient, or ignorant of society's features and prospects is to take a callous, uncaring, and even heartless stance for insubstantial and insufficient reasons. Yes, I can well imagine some listeners thinking, that is certainly a very harsh judgment. And they are right, it is. And yes, I know that rejecting reforms is an almost reflex position of many of the most committed and courageous activists currently engaged on the world stage. But nonetheless, I say that to reject reforms per se is an objectively callous and even heartless stance based on insubstantial, insufficient reasons. Why do I say that? To be against reforms per se is to say of some sought end, quote, that is merely a reform, quote, so I oppose it, so we should oppose it. That says we should be against demonstrating to end a particular war. That is a mere reform. It says we should not support strikes to win better wages or conditions. They are mere reforms. It says we should not support campaigns against pollution or against global warming. They are mere reforms. It says we should not support rallies for affirmative action or for reparations. They are mere reforms. And yet very few who oppose reforms would say any of those things. It turns out, in other words, that very few who say they are against reforms are, in fact, against reforms. Instead, virtually all those who say they oppose reforms would celebrate any victory of the sort I just listed, even when no change of basic social relations occurred. Most would not only not oppose, but would actively support efforts to win such gains. Few would tell marches against the war, stop your protest, don't seek a mere reform. Few would tell strikers for higher wages or for better conditions, stop your strike, don't seek a mere reform. Few would tell opponents of pollution or global warming, stop your campaign, don't seek mere reforms. Few would tell seekers of affirmative action or reparations, stop your efforts, don't seek mere reforms. But nonetheless, by proclaiming that they are against reforms per se, and by calling or even just by implying that those who seek reforms are ignorant or uncommitted, anti-reform people exude a feeling of aloof callousness, as if they believe that reducing suffering is beneath their attention and unworthy of their effort.
So I think that to be against reforms, even if it is merely rhetorical, either is or at least appears to be callous. It typically arises not from an assessment of reforms per se, but from feeling that to be for a reform means that one cannot now be, or even ever be, for more thorough and complete transformation. Being for a reform means that one has sold out favoring more fundamental change. The anti-reform stance turns out to fear that people overtly seeking a reform will never seek more. To favor a reform, this feeling runs, negates any potential for favoring fundamental change. There is, however, zero logical or experiential evidence for such a view. Of course it is true that some people who favor reforms don't favor revolution. It is also true that some people who favor Facebook, in fact, most people who favor Facebook, indeed, a huge proportion of people who favor Facebook, don't favor revolution. One can favor Facebook for reasons that even lead toward not favoring revolution, such as thinking Facebook is a great mechanism of social atomization and control, or thinking Facebook is a great instance of oligarchic enrichment of the few. We don't, on these grounds, deduce that to favor Facebook precludes favoring revolution. Some people who favor free access to clean water don't favor revolution. Does that mean that to favor free access to clean water precludes favoring revolution? Of course not. There is no inexorable connection between favoring Facebook or favoring clean water and not favoring revolution. But okay, then what is the connection that those who oppose reforms per se and who use the word reform as an epithet to disparage see between favoring an end to a war or favoring a higher wage for some workforce, or favoring affirmative action or, or reparations, and not favoring more fundamental change. First, favoring things like an end to war, higher wages for workers, affirmative action, pollution controls, etc., are arguably one component of favoring revolution, or very nearly so. So wherein lies the problem? If the link between favoring reforms and not favoring revolution is insubstantial, and likewise for rejecting reforms on that basis, then when activists do that, are they just being stupid? No, it is not that simple. Instead, those denigrating reforms are thinking that pursuing reforms entails thinking all that is wrong now is some missing policies, and they are right that many people who seek a reform do think that. They are thinking that pursuing reforms means organizing to win some gain and then going home. And they are right, pursuing reform sometimes means just that. It turns out critics of reforms per se are wrongly conflating a person seeking a reform with that same person feeling there is no need for more than reforms. They are conflating seeking a reform with being reformist. And they are right that seeking a reform does sometimes indicate just that. But what about other times? In fact, people do not typically arrive at rejecting society's fundamental institutions in one giant leap. Becoming an activist seeking fundamental change, rather than only reforms, typically involves steps or stages during which one learns about society and about oneself as well. Becoming an activist seeking fundamental change and not only reforms thus very often occurs by way of participating in movements that are seeking to win reforms. Anti-war movements, women's movements, labor movements, no-nukes movements, civil rights movements. It is often not until one has experience in those movements and explores the limits of their goals that one decides the whole system is rotten to the core and needs to be replaced. Put differently, if no one was seeking reforms, and if no one ever had sought reforms, then virtually no one would be revolutionary.
It turns out that to reject reforms per se is not only callous and insubstantial, it is also tantamount to rejecting fundamental change, because it rejects aspects of the processes by which movements for fundamental change are born, tempered, strengthened, and educated. It turns out that the real reason a great many activists reject reforms and use the word reform pejoratively is not because they wrongly reject reforms like ending a war or raising wages or affirmative action, but instead because they rightly reject reformism. The confusion and problem arises because they then wrongly lump that very astute stance into a self-defeating stance that rejects reforms themselves. It is true that reformism rejects fundamental change. It is true that reformism says, seek to end a war, and then go home. It is true that reformism says, seek higher wages, and then go home. It is true that reformism says, seek to shut down one coal plant, or to force employers to hire minorities, or to get wheelchair access in some public buildings, and then go home. It is true that reformism says society's basic institutions are here to stay. They are a given. They are at the firmament of reality. We cannot touch them. It is true that reformism says the only gains possible are ones which take for granted society's defining features. More, reformism typically says that to seek to replace basic defining institutions drains energy from seeking to win specific attainable reforms for a hopeless Sisyphean pursuit of the impossible. Reformism, like all social stances, comes in many shapes and forms, but we can perhaps best differentiate two main types. The first is truly sincere. It sadly believes basic institutions will last forever. It sadly believes that the only way to better the lot of society's worst off is to ameliorate their pains with reforms. But here is something that many revolutionaries do not want to hear. People who believe basic institutions will last forever can be just as caring, have just as worthy values, and be just as courageous as the finest revolutionaries, and indeed can sometimes even be more caring and more courageous. This is possible because to care about oppression doesn't require believing basic institutions can be replaced, and to have wonderful values doesn't require believing basic institutions can be replaced. And to be courageous doesn't require believing basic institutions can be replaced. In fact, you can believe basic institutions cannot be replaced and, depending on your sincere beliefs, even literally oppose attempts at revolution, despite that you have fine values, that you are courageous, and that you work hard to win reforms. To be disdainful of a reformist simply for being reformist is insubstantial and ignorant because the reformist who one is disdainful of may be of the type just described. We should also note that the fact that these caring, motivated, and courageous folks are not revolutionaries is, ironically, not a commentary on them. It is instead a commentary on revolutionaries' failures to make a compelling and convincing case for the possibility of systemic transformation. So are activist pejorative inclinations about reformists completely idiotic? No, because a second type of reformist may care and even be courageous, but not have fine values and be ultimately dishonest. This type of reformist rejects the possibility of fundamental change, perhaps out of fear of revolution. Or perhaps it is due to feeling that fundamental change would diminish the person's own interests. Or perhaps it is due to allegiance to a dominant constituency or class that bends the person's beliefs. But the point is, the person doesn't wish that basic institutions could be altered. 
He or she doesn't adopt a reformist stance only because revolution sincerely appears to him or her to be utterly impossible, though he or she would be ecstatic to be proved wrong. Rather, this type reformist doesn't want to rock the boat, but just wants to ameliorate some of the worst pains, often only to ward off resistance and dissent that would go deeper, and not out of true solidarity with those in pain, and certainly not out of a desire for new defining social relations. This latter type of reformism is what revolutionary activists rightly rebel against, but they often do so in a ham-handed manner that indiscriminately includes sincere reformists and implies opposition to reforms per se. Still, it is certainly true that to become a reformist, for whatever reason, no matter how sincere, means one is not seeking to transform basic institutions, so that, by definition, advocating reformism means rejecting revolution. So if it is revolutionary suicide to reject reforms, but it is also revolutionary suicide to be reformist, what is the strategic solution for those who do want fundamental change? The strategic solution is not rocket science. It is not really all that hard to get to. It is obviously to reject reformism, but not reforms, and to embrace changing basic institutions. It is therefore to fight for reforms in a way that seeks to change basic institutions. But what does that mean? For almost any reform, one can fight for it in a reformist manner that assumes preservation of the surrounding defining institutions. You demand the reform, a higher wage, say. You raise consciousness about it, but about nothing more. You establish organization gears to winning the higher wage, a union, say, but to winning nothing more. You organize until you have generated sufficient power to win a higher wage, at which point you celebrate and go home. Conversely, it is also possible to fight for almost any reform in a manner that is not reformist, but is instead radical or revolutionary. You not only demand the reform, a higher wage, say, and raise consciousness about it. You also raise consciousness about how much income people should really, rightly get, and about by what means and according to what standards people should get their income. In short, you go beyond the immediate situation to engender system-defying attitudes and understanding. You also establish organizations, say a workers' council, geared to winning the reform but also to persisting long after it is won. You organize until you have generated sufficient power to win the reform, but then you also fight for further gains in a trajectory leading to a whole new social structure. Sometimes it is even true that a reform itself, the thing that is demanded, can be better or worse from the perspective of going on to pursue long-term gains and win a new system. Some reforms strengthen your position, or they gain you needed time, for example. And the same holds for choices you make and practices you undertake in the campaign to win the reform. For example, take fighting against a particular war. Do you, in the process, build opposition to the imperial causes of war and to the underlying economic, political, and social institutions that propel war? Even more, do you develop support for a vision of peaceful international relations and a commitment to win them? Do you build movement allegiances and organization that will persist when the opposed war ends? Or take fighting for a better wage in some workplace, or for a higher minimum wage for all workplaces, as an example. Do you, in the process, build opposition to the capitalist causes of low wages? Do you build opposition to the underlying economic, political, and social institutions that propel low wages? Even more, do you develop support for a vision of and a commitment to win really desirable equitable remuneration? 
Do you build movement allegiance and organization that will persist when the immediately sought wage gain is won and then will battle on for more fundamental gains? These are no small matters. Undoing these things or not hinges the difference between acting on caring, good values, and having an impact that lasts, or acting on caring, good values, but having an impact that dissipates. The associated strategic insight is that reforms that improve people's conditions are, of course, good, but that they can be fought for in a reformist manner or in a radical or revolutionary manner. The reformist path can be sincere and even admirable, but it will certainly not optimally contribute to winning fundamental change. The radical or revolutionary path may. The title of this episode of Revolution Z referred to reforms and reformism, but also to seeds of the future. So what do we think about the second focus, seeds of the future? A well-known anarchist slogan related to the issue says that we need to plant the seeds of the future in the present. And I think this points to another strategic insight that is virtually universally applicable. But what does it mean? It means build structures and projects and organizations in the present that incorporate or foreshadow as many key aspects as possible of the future that we hope to win. The idea is that attaining our goals requires that we have sufficient, informed, committed support. It also requires that we actually implement changes consistent with our goals, about which we learn more as we proceed by building as we go. We should, therefore, incorporate structures in our projects, movements, and campaigns that embody aspects of our future aims, partly to attract and hold supporters, and partly to learn whether our ideas have merit. It is not a pure test of merit because we only have a part of our future embodied and because we are not yet future people and because the rest of the environment of the test is typically hostile to it. Nonetheless, if we are careful, patient, and take account of variables, we can learn about the merits or failings of our ideas. Consider the economic vision we have been developing in our past episodes. If with that as our goal, we could implement elements of or even a full version of equitable remuneration for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work in our workplace. Or we could implement balanced job complexes in some project or a movement. Or we could enact a self-managed decision-making. Having done so, we would understand that we have backgrounds that are contrary to the change and that we have constant pressures all around us that push against the change, including persistent markets, for example but we could still learn about some merits or some problems of the change, and the same holds for other structural features we may advocate attaining. So first, we should plant seeds of our vision to learn the properties of the emergent society we seek, and if we discover problems, to fix them. Part of our vision is also about participation and empowerment, and participation and empowerment are also essential to movements and struggle. If future structures are meant to convey participation and empowerment to all people in the future, why can't planting the seeds of these structures, however partially, convey those results to at least some people in the present? For example, we want a world that is welcoming for all cultural communities, in which women are full participants, in which there is classlessness, and so on. Part of why we try to incorporate future structures now is precisely because we want the worthy results that those structures are meant to convey in the future as best we can get them now. The idea is simple enough. If our vision has merit, even its partial implementation, planting its seeds, may convey some of its benefits, not just later, but now. This will enrich the lives of people in our movements and give them more reason to stay, make them better able to attract others. 
So we plant tomorrow's seeds today so our movements can enjoy some of the fruits of the sought future now. Our movements, for example, can borrow from the approaches in our visions to handling responsibilities, to dispersing benefits, to making decisions, and to adjudicating disputes. But there is still more to planting seeds of the future now. When activists say they despise oppression and they seek liberation, why should anyone believe us? When we say another world is possible, again, why should anyone believe us? Every politician on the planet says at least some positive things, and we, the left, say they lie. When we say positive things, why shouldn't people deduce that we lie? When someone says they are against oppression, and they say another world is possible, we look at their practice and at what they advocate and what they call desirable. We check to see if what they favor is part of the current world, part of oppression. If so, we do not believe their claim. The advocate of slave owning in the name of freedom is not worthy of belief. The advocate of wage slavery in the name of plenty for all is not worthy of belief. But if someone claims to be against oppression and argues that another world is possible, and that person advocates institutions consistent with their claim, and that person seeks to embody seeds of those institutions even in the present, then there is good reason to listen carefully to that person, to look closely, and perhaps even to believe. So this last reason for incorporating the seeds of the future in the present is to inspire hope, trust, and desire. Conversely, suppose we do not embody the seeds of the future in our endeavors. We get to the point of actually winning against opponents of change. Then what? We have no experience with new ways of organizing life. We have no experience with new ways of living. We know how to struggle, yes, but not how to live in new ways. We haven't embodied in our efforts new structures meant for a new society. There is in that case a great danger that we will squander victory, turning it into defeat. Reforms and seeds both matter. Understood as we have proposed, they are two entwined aspects of a strategy we can sensibly pursue without bias, flexibly, and with confidence, but not arrogance. We have come quite a way already, at least regarding economic vision. But one of the more complex and controversial aspects of a future economy, and therefore of our economic vision, remains to be addressed. Last episode, we rejected central planning and also markets, but rejection without advocacy is strategically empty. Next episode, we must therefore address a new approach to what to use for allocation in place of central planning and markets. It will turn out to be what I call participatory planning. For now, however, I hope you will acknowledge that activist projects, including this one, need support. I hope you will use whatever means you can muster for the purpose to attract new listeners to Revolution Z. And I also hope you will visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash revolutionz and become a supporter at whatever level you feel comfortable with. I am not exaggerating when I tell you that the future of Revolution Z, a podcast that focuses on vision and strategy, depends on it. That said, for now, this is Michael Albert signing off until next time for Revolution Z.